Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on our unblushing theme, Good Witch, Bad Witch. This is The Full Monty, the entire show recorded live, exploring stories of misplaced judgment. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. This summer, we are following the yellow brick road with tales told live, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho Penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Now, we'll discover the good and the bad from our guest host, Allison Meyer, and our featured storytellers, Leslie Bing, Salome Mwangi, and Amos Rothstein, intermixed with a community story slam. There's no place like late night. There's no place like late night. Chay. I was uh, telling Allison Che that you have the energy of a vegan. I don't know how you do it. Man, dancing, right? Woo! Yeah, right. Anybody else pitting out out there? Yeah, summer. Thank you so much for coming out and braving the sun and the heat. Give yourselves a round of applause for being here. This is the second show in our summer season um, with the overarching theme of Wizard of Oz. Tonight's theme is Good Witch, Bad Witch, Stories of Misplaced Judgment. Um, the, uh, how many story subscribers do we have in the house? Give a applause, raise your hand. All right, awesome. Um, if you would like to become a story subscriber, you can text Story sub to 44321, you'll receive tickets to all our shows. Really helps us to have consistent subscribers. You get all the, sh- all the tickets, all the shows, all the time. So please look into that if you're interested. Um, how the show's gonna work tonight, I'm gonna bring up your host, um, and she's gonna tell a wonderful story. And then we'll have three featured storytellers. We'll, tell, uh, we'll have our first featured storyteller. We'll do a slam, that is a person who's pulled at random to tell a five-minute story on the theme, and then we'll have our second featured storyteller, an intermission, we'll come back, we'll do our third featured storyteller, and we'll do a few more slammers, all right? So if you are interested in being one of those slammers, you can go see our Story Slam booth over there. And while you're there, if you are interested in volunteering sometime, we are looking for volunteers, so welcome to the show. We have, you have work to do, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> so you can sign up to volunteer over there. You can talk to Natalia, especially for our flagship, flagship season. Um, I think that's all of the business I have to take care of. Again, thank you so much for being here. It is my absolute joy and pleasure to introduce your host tonight. She is an incredible writer and storyteller. Please put your hands together for Allison Meyer. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here, although I was wondering if agreeing to host a show outside in the middle of July would end up being a story of misplaced judgment. But I'm very excited to be here with all of you and very grateful for all of you sitting in the sun right now. Um, I am excited to dive into this theme and talk about good witches and bad witches and misplaced judgment. I. Uh, 
I did a lot of acting as a child, and I was always looking for examples of performance to study. And I was always particularly fascinated by Margaret Hamilton's performance as the Wicked Witch of the West. Because if you're looking for examples of acting, like she is committing on a level that nobody else can match. And there's one moment in particular that always stuck with me um, as a kid. And it's, I would say, not one of her more famous moments. It's the moment when she locks Dorothy in the tower. She's recognized that she's not going to get the ruby slippers back unless Dorothy's dead. And her response to that is to very dramatically flip over this hourglass and say, I can't, now I'm forgetting her line, you guys. It's too hot. <laughs> Uh, she would say, see that? That's how much longer you have left to be alive, which is really brilliant phrasing. And then she just put the hourglass on the table and stormed out of the room and left Dorothy to cry, which is such a move. It's like, it's kind of a modern in the abrupt cruelty of it. It's like something you'd see on a reality show today. And I think it's the moment in the movie where she sees, seems most in control as the villain. And I remember watching this as a young actress and thinking, who would want to play Dorothy? <laughs> it's so much more interesting to be the bad witch. Uh, and then there was a period of time a little bit later in my life, in my late teens and early 20s, when that philosophy seemed to jump into my actual life. And sometimes I wonder if I'm misremembering how I was back then. Like maybe I'm over-exaggerating the effect I was having. And I'll consult with my friends from that era and say things like, I was kind of a bitch in college, right? <laughs> and they'll be like, yeah, you were really mean. <laughs> um, I, the moments that keep me up at night are, are less the, the kind of drunken drama you might imagine, but, but more the moments when I had real responsibility and impact. I was uh, the editor of my college newspaper. Uh, at this point, I had given up on acting and decided to pursue what I thought to be the far more stable career of newspaper journalism. And uh, I was 20 years old, managing a staff of 50 people. And our first few months on, my first few months on the job, we got caught up in a tornado of sorts. Um, I went to a, a big football college in Montana, and one of my reporters wrote a story that made the head football coach angry, and then he stopped answering my reporter's questions in press conferences, and this became this big local news story that turned into a big national news story, and all of a sudden there was a spotlight on my newsroom and everything that we were doing. And I started getting a lot of hate mail and a lot of interview requests. And it really could have been this opportunity to rise to the occasion and be the good witch and the good leader and guide my staff through this storm. Um, instead, as the semester wore on, I started getting very concerned that the people around me weren't as committed as I needed them to be to this cause. Um, and so right at the semester, Point, right as everyone was about to go home for the holidays, I made everybody reapply for their jobs. Um, everybody except me, of course. Um, and I, it's kind of like the moment in the movie where the wizard um, asks Dorothy and her friends to bring back the broomstick to kind of prove that they are worthy, except in this case, I was asking everyone to bring back 
an application they'd already filled out once before, but this time with like far more resentment and ambivalence. And um, there were people around me, to their credit, who tried to talk me out of this and explain what a terrible idea this was. Uh, but I just, I couldn't hear what they were saying. And I essentially said like, too bad. <laughs> the hourglass is on the table and we will see what happens. And um, what happened wasn't great. A lot of people uh, walked away from that experience, shockingly. Um, and it's one of those moments in time that I return to a lot and I try to figure out like, what was that? <laughs> what led me to this point where I couldn't even recognize how misplaced my judgment was? And maybe more terrifying, like what does it mean today when I see little bits of that person coming out again? And I have to say, I had a bit of a revelation re-watching The Wizard of Oz for this gig, because I hadn't seen it for over a decade. Who's seen it in like the past five years? A few people. There were a couple of things that struck me on the rewatch. The first is that for all her fire and red smoke and sky riding, the sky riding is my favorite, um, we don't actually see the Wicked Witch of the West kill anybody. The entire body count of the film is associated with Dorothy. <laughs> when she arrives in Oz, she's mistaken as a witch because her house has just fallen on top of somebody and killed them. And the way that she kills the Wicked Witch of the West is particularly interesting because some critics have pointed out that this is a structural flaw of the film. Like, it could be seen as a problem that we're not introduced to the water like way earlier in the movie. Like usually if there's a way to vanquish the bad guy, there's some kind of foreshadowing. Like you would see the witch being afraid of water, for example, but that doesn't happen in this movie. We're introduced to the water at the exact same time that Dorothy is. Um, and there's something so much more realistic about the way that unfolds because what happens is that Dorothy is frightened and she's running away and she's cornered. And in this frantic moment, she, she takes this bucket of water and throws it to try to put out a fire. And in the process, she destroys somebody. And I was watching that the other night and thinking, oh no, because it's so much scarier to realize I've just been Dorothy this entire time. And I really have never been operating with some Margaret Hamilton level of showmanship or control. Like really the times in my life when I've been the most destructive are the times when I've been the most afraid. Um, and luckily I'm in good company tonight with our featured storytellers who are also revisiting moments in the past where they might have been the bad witch or returning to some past judgments and reevaluating those. Um, and I would love to bring out our first featured storyteller of the evening. She was actually up here just last month as a story slammer. And we are so excited to have her back now as a featured storyteller. So join me in welcoming Leslie Bing. So we all remember Glenda's first words to Dorothy. Are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? This is something I've pondered a lot in my life. Am I a good witch or am I a bad witch? And there's no other story that accumulates this idea for me better than my relationship with a girl named Julie. 
So Julie and I met 16 years ago. It's, we live in Austin, Texas, and we're both going to school to learn to become sign language interpreters. And I notice her, the first class that I walk into, she has bright red hair and a bubbly personality. We become fast friends. We sit by each other at every class. We start hanging out in the lunchroom during our breaks. I start giving her rides home. This leads to us going out and eating copious amounts of Mexican food together and then drunken nights in her apartment singing to Journey or Britney Spears from the top of our lungs with her roommate. So it was a great friendship. It happened quickly and it was a lot of fun. So Julie liked this guy named Chris. She didn't like, she was in love with this guy named Chris and he was like the boy next door for her. They met each other like in the eighth grade and she moved to his neighborhood and she was in love with him, just batshit crazy in love with this guy. They would make out from time to time, and what the roommate and I noticed to be the pattern was that Chris would have a girlfriend, break up with a girlfriend, make out with Julie, and then have a new girlfriend that wasn't Julie. But Julie was like, no, 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 eventually he'll want me. We were all very skeptical. So I didn't have a good impression of Chris, and when I met him for the first time, neither one of us left with a good impression of the other. It was at a party for Julie's birthday, and I remember leaving and thinking, like, that guy? That's who she's in love with? Like, the friend he brought with him was way hotter. <sighs> well, then let's fast forward to July 2008, and I have decided to dip my toes into the pool that is stand-up comedy. And Julie invites Chris and his friends to come along for the first show. I think, great, I have no problem with this. More people to laugh at my hilarity, okay? This is fantastic. Then after the show, we're all in the parking lot hanging out talking, and somehow Chris and I end up in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I don't remember how or what we were even talking about. My guess is he was telling me how funny and brave I am. <laughs> but we end up talking, and all these cliches are true. Like, the world melted around us, and it was just him and me. And there were fireworks going off. It was all those things were true. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Chris, this guy? But the chemistry was undeniable and palpable, so much so that I remember looking over at Julie and thinking, oh, fuck, this can't be good. It wasn't. So a week later, we all went out to karaoke, and Chris and I are very flirty with each other to the point where Julie's starting to notice, and Julie is not a happy camper by what she sees. On the drive home that night, Chris and I were not the designated drivers. We're drunk in the back seat. And he leans over and whispers to me in my ear something that he will deny until his dying breath that he ever said to me, but I know he said it. He whispered in my ear, I'm so enchanted by you. I'd probably deny it too. <laughs> Let's be real. But I got it. I was like, I've known this guy like a week and he's completely consuming my life. We exchange numbers that night. We start texting, added him on Facebook put him in my MySpace top eight. I don't know, what did we do in 2008? I don't even remember. So we're chatting, we become you know, pretty constant texters with each other and I have to go out of town for a trip. And while I'm on this trip, Chris and I are texting all the time, every day. I uh, charm him with my use of properly using a semicolon. He's going to school to be an English teacher. Know your audience, people. So we're texting all the time, and then one night, Julie texts me and says, hey, I invited Chris over to come watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics with me. 
So I get a little, a little pang of jealousy, I'm not gonna lie, but what am I to say? No, you can't have this guy over that you've known for 10 years. So they hang out, I go on with my vacation, all's right with the world, until the next morning when I get the text from Julie. Hey, do you know where I can buy plan B? <laughs> First of all, bitch, Google that shit, okay? <laughs> like, literally, you have a computer, you walk over to the computer, you type in, where do I find Plan B, Austin, Texas? Bam, I don't need to be a part of this conversation. But I see what you're doing, you're marking your territory, and I respect that. So I decide I have two options. One, I bow out gracefully. I walk away, I don't need to be a part of this messy love triangle, right? That is what a good friend would do. Or two, I text Chris, Chris, knowing he is hanging out with Julie, and see if he texts me back while hanging out with Julie. <laughs> and then we go from there. Needless to say, both Julie and I took plan B that day. <laughs> So I text him, <laughs> something witty and charming, I'm sure, and he immediately texts me back, and I think, meh, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm gonna keep moving forward with this relationship. Bad witch, bad, bad, bad witch. So a week later, I come home to Texas, and we go out on our first date the night I get home, and I would love to tell you I wasn't some backstabbing bitch who broke the girl code that night, but I would be lying. So I broke the girl code all night long that night, in fact. And uh, we decided we would start seeing each other pretty quickly. Uh, we were both smitten kittens. It was bound to happen. But we decide in a fateful decision that we're not going to tell Julie that we've started to date. So this goes on for about a month and a half, two months, and then Chris decides, no, I'm going to make the phone call and I'm going to tell Julie everything. I feel like this is a good point in the story to tell you. I know you're imagining Julie in your mind right now and you see this like vibrant, redhead, bubbly personality girl, that's great. You've probably seen her walking around enjoying life, that's great. Just go ahead and put her in a wheelchair because <laughs> I stole a guy from my best friend in a wheelchair. I know what you're thinking, oh my God, what a bitch, she's in a wheelchair? No, this just means I don't discriminate, okay? I'll fuck over any of my friends. I don't even care. So Chris tells Julie everything, there's tears, there's, I get angry messages from her and her roommate, and I think, well, this friendship is over, and let me tell you how few fucks I give at this point, because I'm falling in love. So Julie eventually tells us, no, I still want to be your friend. Chris and I are both flabbergasted by this. We thought for sure it was over, done with. She would never want to talk to us again. But slowly we started coming back around to the idea of being friends again. To the point where the next year she invites Chris and I out on a double date. I show up to the double date and it's a guy that I fucked two years prior. <laughs> okay, I see you, Julie, I see you. So Chris and I continue dating and we have a very surface level friendship with Julie. In 2012, we get married 
and we go off and see the world together. In fact, if I could describe to you like the first three years of our marriage, it would be like Aladdin with Jasmine on the magic carpet, right? <laughs> I can show you the world. That was us. I swam in a cave in Oman. I hiked the mountains of Thailand. I saw Christmas markets in Austria. He showed me the world, and for three years it was magic. And then one really horrible, shitty year, and we got divorced <laughs> after four years to get married. So nothing makes you more introspective than a divorce, right? You're really looking inward. What happened? What went wrong? So I start thinking about Julie and how I'd been this bad witch to her. And I wanted to reach out to her, but I didn't know what to say because I justified these decisions for so long. Look at this, look at this man of my dreams. It's totally fine that I fucked my friend over. Look at what I have, look at the life we're building together. It's fine. But now I had nothing to show for it. So I reached out to Julie and I profusely apologized and laid my heart out on the line and expected her to be like, you know what, you dumb bitch, maybe you don't marry the guy who fucks you a week after he fucked me. Just an idea. That's what she should have said to me. That's what she could have said to me. But instead, she just sent three words to me. I forgive you. That dumb bitch. <laughs> I was ready to die a martyr, okay? And then she's like, no, 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 you can be the good witch too. So all this to say, don't fuck over your friends. It usually doesn't end well, but if you are going to, I hope you fuck over a Julie who's a good witch and will tell you that she forgives you. Thank you very much. Thank you for that enchanting uh, story. Um, <laughs> I, I was realizing as I was listening to that that I must be kind of starved for gossip because even though <laughs> you were talking about uh, people I don't know and something that happened years ago, I got very excited when you started talking about that double team, <laughs> um, which is maybe a good way to introduce the story slam section of the evening. If um, any of you want to resurrect some drama from the past tonight, um, you too can tell a story. Um, you can just submit your name over at the Story Slam booth. And I think um, if I can summon the name so far, we will we'll draw our first Story Slammer of the night. Um, if I draw your name, you have five minutes to tell a story on the theme of Good Witch, Bad Witch. Um, if we're getting to the point where the time is running out in the hourglass and it's time to wrap up, I'm gonna do a very slow Margaret Hamilton creep up towards you and the microphone, and that's how you'll know. All right, let's, um, I won't look because this bag is see-through. <laughs> and, oops, here we go. Sven? What's up? Oh, okay, well. So I'm Steven, uh, some people call me Sven. By the way, I run sound for Story Story Night and I've been threatening to do this for years and uh, finally got the guts to put my thing in the hat. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just in case you're wondering, uh, you see me staring at my phone a lot, it's because that's how I run the sound system here uh, or I'm trying to avoid talking to somebody. I gotta tell you, this is, smartphones in general are an introvert's dream come true. Uh, now, that said, a few years ago, 
I had a friend named Allison who gave everybody nicknames. She was the first one to call me Sven. And I had just gotten a new roommate who she aptly named Glenda. Now, when I first interviewed Glenda, I had creeped on her on the internet beforehand, and a footnote, she happened to be half of a first lesbian married couple to get divorced in South Carolina. That's just an aside. Now, fast forward to the interview, which she, I'm giving her a tour around the house, and uh, everything is like fun and jovial, and I'm really clicking with her, and it's, yeah, I get a good vibe, and she's like, okay, I really like you, but I gotta ask a question. Are you conservative or liberal? I'm like, what? I I don't even know how to answer that. Okay, because I'm a lesbian, if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with me. First few months go by, okay, everything is great. And, you know, she has a couple of cute little dogs that like to visit with me and she doesn't cause too much of a fuss. And uh, I have a very staunch rule in my house, no overnight visitors without my knowledge. And she would uh, have visitors over at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, whatever, fine. As time went on, she started getting sloppier. Along with the sloppiness also came visitors. Her room was right next to mine at 2, 3 a.m., sometimes later. She apparently had a different definition of overnight than I did. So I didn't get much sleep. For more than one reason, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but she also had this psychotic ex-girlfriend. I don't remember her name, but... I would come home from work. I, I could see evidence that somebody had been prowling around my backyard. I, I could tell that like the dog door in the back was folded up kind of weird, like somebody had tried to squeeze through it. And uh, you know, one time she busted in, uh, Glenda had forgotten to lock the door, 2 a.m. She busts in and walks into her room and starts yelling at her. And of course, I'm just hearing screaming. And it's like, I wish I had a shotgun at the time because it'd be like, it's time to go home, honey. One time, my neighbor caught her hiding behind one of my bushes with the sprinklers running, mind you, with a two-by-four in hand. What are you doing here? You don't understand what's going on in this house. No, 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 I don't care. You get out of here, I'm calling the cops. Never saw her again. It was around that time that I decided it was time for Glenda to go. She took it pretty well. <laughs> no, I'm serious, but... Uh, yeah, we, we parted on relatively decent ways. I think she understood my motivation. She couldn't follow the house rules and, you know, for several other aspects as well. But uh, the main was uh, overnight visitors and psychotic ex-girlfriends that like prowling around on my property. That wasn't spelled out in the rental agreement, but I have since added that in a no nudity clause, by the way, because I would be talking to her upstairs. She'd be dressed nicely, like she's ready to go to work. I go downstairs to, to start a pot of tea. I come back upstairs and she's buck naked. And of course, she's scared every single time. You're a 45-year-old woman. Either be dressed or be used to be seen naked. I don't know. <laughs> So uh, I, I gave her plenty of time. You know, our, our rental agreement was monthly, so either one of us could back out of it any time if we wanted. And I, I gave her 30 days to leave, and she wound up staying like an extra month, which was fine. She was making an effort. I get that. After I was cleaning out the, what was left over room, I had given her a, a little mini fridge because there wasn't enough room in my refrigerator for her stuff. And I'm not kidding you, there was left in there a small jar of pee. And that's the mic drop, there you go. 
Um, thank you so much. There's still time throughout the evening. You can sign up to also be a story slammer and share slogans like, what was it? Be naked or be okay, or be dressed or be okay being seen naked. Um, I am thrilled to introduce our second featured storyteller of the evening. Um, I see her back there. She um, also has a bit of a history with uh, Story Story Night. She was actually involved in Starry Story Night. Has anyone been to Starry Story Night? The format of that is a little bit different. <laughs> yes, you, I'm talking about you. Um, we, uh, it's, uh, instead of individual storytellers coming up, it's these interwoven stories um, on a theme. And so we are thrilled to bring her back uh, this evening to tell another story. And I'll give her a little bit of time to get over here. Um, I'm very excited to see where this is going. Um, I will <laughs> slowly introduce uh, Salome Mwangi. Forgive me, it's hard to pay attention when you're being roasted back there. <laughs> okay, so I have this plan, and I'm going to unfold it for you because it's an amazing plan. I know that it's gonna work out exactly as I have planned it. My plan, my time, my dime, my way. So let's go back to 1993. Did I just date myself? <laughs> Naima and I gel as soon as we meet. We're both new to this uh, department in the bank where we're working in Nairobi, Kenya. We're like click and we're off. We couldn't be more different even though there were similarities. She was a firstborn to three younger brothers, I was the first born to one brother, and three sisters. She was laid back. And some of the things that used to set me on my teeth on edge, she was like, oh, pooey, there's nothing. I don't understand why you're gonna eat me your panties all up in a wad. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing was, we couldn't have been more different. She was lighter skinned than I was. She was taller than I was, and she was more voluptuous. I, on the other hand, will let you fill in the blanks. <laughs> and as we continued working, we were actually traveling throughout, throughout Kenya, and we continued keeping in touch, deepening our relationship as we went along. We had the kind of relationship that makes other girlfriends jealous because of what we had. Wasp. <laughs> Not the relationship. <laughs> so then it gets to the part where we are learning, we have people coming in to work with us from Zimbabwe, and, Gray, and, and Neema and I are like, hey, guess what? Let's show them what Nairobi City has to offer in a nightlife, and needless to say, we painted the town red. And then there was the other guys from the UK who came in also working with us, hey, hey, hey. 
here we go. And so we showed them what the rest of Kenya had to offer. And this is after hours over the weekends and during the holidays. They were such meaningful relationships that to this day, I'm still in touch with many of those people. Then there's a time when Naima decides, do you wanna watch a movie in the middle of the day? And we walk into a movie theater, pay for the tickets, popcorn and all. And after the movie was done, we walked out and joined the thrones of people going home like we had just come from work. And she whispered over to me, shh, I won't tell if you don't. I was like, cool beans, cool beans. She knew some of my secrets. I knew some of hers. And life was really a blast for us as we were on this journey of ours. Then Naima became with child. And unfortunately, her relationship with the baby daddy disintegrated. And this plunged her into a deep depression. And I didn't know what to do. I was wringing my hands trying to figure out how to help her, how to get her out of this thing, and I couldn't. So we just waded through this season of her life until the baby was born. And you guys know, a baby changes everything. It doesn't matter what it is that you've gone through. There's the joys, there's the adventure. They keep you on your toes, they keep you on your knees. And life was pretty okay. You know, we got on a different track, but we continued. The projects that we were working on kind of came to a close with the Y2K excitement <laughs> dying down. <laughs> and we kind of went our separate ways. Didn't continue keeping in touch as often as we had before. But, you know, we checked on each other every once in a while. But there was this one thing that had bothered me for a really long time. It was like, you know that lone marble that rolls around your head, cannot find a place to dock? It was one of those kind of things. And I wondered about this guy. I kind of liked him. And uh, he kind of liked me. But he'd be hot and then cold and then hot again. And I'm thinking, make up your mind. And on one of those times we came back together, he would be asking me questions about places I'd been, people I'd been with, things I had done. Oh, then it dawned on me. Neema had been spilling the beans. Oh gosh, was I mad. I was so pissed off. I don't know what hurt more, the betrayal of my best friend or the loss of my Mr. Kinda Like You. Here's what I decided. I'm pissed off, I'm locking that door, I'm throwing away the key and you deal with it. Oh my goodness, Nema tried to reach out to me tried to explain what it was. No, it's not the way you think it was. Let me tell you, I was hearing none of it. Please forgive me, that isn't what, I don't care. I really didn't care. So then I started hearing stories that she wasn't doing very well. I didn't care. I heard that 
she had decided to go to the UK, follow some economic opportunities because she was the sole breadwinner. Didn't care. She wrote me an email. Back in those days, finding somebody's email isn't as easy as it is today. So she found my email and she sent me an email. And the one that she actually sent me several, the one that stuck with me is the one where she asked me, so why have you made yourself the judge, the jury, and the jailer? And I thought, ooh, she's mad. <laughs> Didn't change anything with me. 2004, I relocate to the US. I pack up my tattered flag of pride with me, and I came here with it. Naima continued trying to reach out and to explain to me. I blocked her. I heard that she was back in Kenya. Didn't matter to me. I heard that her mother wasn't feeling well. That broke my heart, but I never let her show. Never let it show, never let her know. I heard that she wasn't feeling well and she was in and out of the hospital. Silence. And then I heard that she had a baby. And I thought, oh, a baby changes everything. So you see, I have this plan of how we're going to do this thing on my time, on my dime, in my way. And I'm in the middle of buying an air ticket because I want to go back. And I want to show Naima, you know what? I changed. I grew up. I filled out in places I hadn't filled out before. I almost look like you now. And I'm going to tell her how much I understand the pain of raising a child on your own as a single parent. And I'm going to tell her, look at my own child. I understand the pain of being abandoned by a baby daddy. I'm going to look for her. I'm going to surprise her. Everybody has been told I'm going, but please don't tell anybody else. And everything is lined up as it should be. I'm looking forward to embracing her and patching things up and catching up on each other and tell me what happened and saying, I'm so sorry about your mom's failing health. Only the thing is, Nema died in 2009, in March of 2009. And I never got to say any of the things that I wanted to say. I wanted to go there with my pride folded up and offer forgiveness on a platter. I never got to do that. There was this heaviness in my spirit at that time. It was like a cloak that wrapped itself around my heart and I couldn't shake it off and neither could I shake off the sadness that followed it. When I look back, I realize that was Nema bidding me goodbye. That was Nema telling me she was cool. I cannot tell you how many times I have asked her to forgive me in my heart. I cannot tell you how many times I told her name, I forgive you, over and over again. 
I cannot tell you how many times I've replayed the opportunities that I missed out, that I would have taken advantage of. And even today, as I think back, I think of her name, Naima, and I realize she forgave me. She forgave me a long time ago. Because you see, her name, Naima, means grace in Kiswahili. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think in honor of that beautiful story and your friend, we should all just skip work tomorrow and go see a movie. <laughs> I love that story. Um, we are going to take about a 10-minute intermission. Um, this is a chance if you want to go visit um, the restrooms. They are out this gate if you go past the main penitentiary entrance, and they're just there to the left. Um, and then there is a woodland beer and wine for sale as well. Um, and this is also an opportunity if you want to sign up to uh, be a story slammer later in the evening. That's what a lot of the second act will be. All right. Thank you, everyone. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hello. We are going to get started in one minute. If everyone could look around them and see if there is anything resembling a parrot in their area. Some, somebody has lost a glasses case, and I'm told it looks very colorful like a parrot. If you see something of that nature, if you could bring it over to the slammer booth, they would very much appreciate it. Are you ready? Um, and I think um, to kick off this second act, I'm going to just turn this over directly to our guest musician, Che, who's going to start us off with a special song. Just because I'm presuming that I could be more than human if I only had a heart. If I only had a heart. If I only had a heart. I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. If I only had a heart. If I only had a heart. If I If I only had 
me above a voice sings low we're from Ada, Romeo and picture me a balcony above a voice sings low To register emotion, jealousy, devotion, and really feel the part. I could stay young and chipper, and I'd lock it with a zipper if I only had a heart. That was that was amazing. <laughs> I was sitting over there wondering, like, why, why don't people cover this more? This is so good. <laughs> I think um, we will do our next story slammer of the evening. Um, there's still time to sign up if you're interested in being a story slammer. Also, if you're interested in being a featured storyteller at a future show, you can email your pitch to story at storystorynight.org, um, and we'll draw our, our next name. I'm not looking, I promise but I kind of am, because I have to see what's going on. <laughs> right. Juliana Myra? Is it this one? Just kidding. <laughs> wow. That dude was tall. You're tall. You're tall. He's tall. Anyway, um, hi guys. It's been a long time since I've done this. I used to do stand up with Amos. Round of applause for Amos, who got me to sign up. Um, so, my story is about vengeance in a time I was the bad witch. Surprise, surprise. Um, so, I went to Catholic school, unfortunately, with my younger sister, who had a propensity for mischief. And one day she found my diary. Oh yes. And so for show and tell that year, oh it gets real bad. For show and tell that year, my beautiful sister took my diary to school and read the passage about me liking girls and then revealed my crush's name. <laughs> yeah, who promptly stopped talking to me, cut communication, told her parents, who told my parents that uh, not only had I bought my ticket to hell, but I was uninvited from all girls' birthday parties <laughs> henceforth. So, I like girls and boys, P.S. So like, I still got invited to the boys' parties, which was weird, I was like, hmm, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like anything you guys like. Uh, don't pass me the football. <laughs> yeah. So um, to get her back, I plotted for months. We used to go to this um, summer camp together um, called Juniper Mountain Outfitters. It's in Cascade. Yeah. We got some horse girls in the audience. Giddy up, my friends. Anyway. Um, we used to go to this horse camp, and my sister had forgotten all the havoc she had wreaked 
in my life, but I had not. And so when we got to horse camp, I was like, bring it on, bitch. My parents aren't here, and neither are yours, which happen to be the same. But um, yeah, the parents weren't here, and I was a counselor in training, and I had control and the keys to a tractor. So <laughs> all week long, I pranked my sister relentlessly. One night, I convinced all the campers that I would not cook them breakfast if they did not help me unload 150 hay bales from said tractor in front of my sister's tent to box her in. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun watching her scramble around at six in the morning going, shit, and like her little legs kicking out and she couldn't get out of the hay bales, which were stacked way, way above her height. And um, yeah. I kind of got in trouble for that one because the horses didn't get fed, but it was worth it. <laughs> so worth it. Uh, the next prank I pulled was the culminating one, the masterpiece, if you will. I gave every camper in that camp a bottle of shaving cream and instructed them to stand outside of my sister's tent upon the last day of camp. And when she woke up in the morning and opened her little tent flap, it was right to the dome. And in her confusion, I grabbed her by the hair and dragged her to the corral, whereupon I found a fresh pile of horse shit and stuffed it in her mouth and said, talk shit now. Um, uh that was amazing. Uh, Julie, um, before you get too settled down, uh, the wizard would love you to go sign our release form so we can make sure to share that with other people. That's a great story. Um, I know this wasn't the point of your story, but I really always wanted to go to horse camp. I'm really jealous. That was my dream. Um, all right, I, I see our next featured storyteller waiting over on the side. Um, he also um, has been a slammer in the past and told some really fantastic stories, and we're excited to now have him as a featured storyteller. So please welcome Amos Rothstein. Thank you. My name is Amos Rothstein. Um, I am a comic. Uh, locally, I am a food critic for The Statesman, and tonight I'm a storyteller, and I'm very nervous, because most of the things I'm about to tell you are a lot less funny than what I usually like to say into a microphone, a lot more personal. And I'd be remiss not to thank the lovely Beth Norton, who's been calming me down all night, and Jody for creating all of this. Can we give them a round of applause? Seriously. Um, they've not only created art for all of us to see, but they've done a service and community service and bringing all of us here together to hear each other's stories, understand our neighbors better, and hopefully relate a little bit to each other more, which I think we could all use a little more of lately. So, um, I was flattered to be asked uh, to do this at all. I was thinking about all of the different topics this summer and which might make most sense. I was thinking about all the funny quips that I could tell you in my story, all the spicy little details I could give you to 
get that audible gasp from you, the final twist of my tail right before a thunderous applause <laughs> as I leave this chunk of cement. My manager, who I don't have, would call about a book deal that's not on the table and say, the reviews are in, we love you, the book's yours. So I thought misplaced judgments was a very good place to go with that, especially given my own. Um, I recently turned 31. <laughs> June 29th, I turned 31. I know, gross, boo. 10 years ago, that was ancient to me. I spent a lot of time on 31 thinking about what 21-year-old me would have thought about where I am now. 21-year-old me had a very grand vision for where I would be now. Uh, very hard-lined, pun intended, straight and narrow. And I would be with a woman who I met in a very exciting way. She'd be eccentric. We'd have that you know, playful competitiveness in our careers that were meteorically rising. People would be in awe of our humor and our unique love for one another. And travel and adventure would be a constant. Not ever thinking about money, but that would be our life. And we'd love to be asked about how we met. That really annoying way that couples love to fucking be asked about how they met. It'd be that ping pong back and forth that's like puke worthy where one person chimes in about an endearing but embarrassing story of the other, and then another one does the same thing, and another one does the same thing, and that's what I thought what love was at 21. Oh, it's annoying. But I drew a very hard line of what I thought I needed to be for success and to earn the respect that I thought I needed to respect myself, and for what I thought my career and my friendships and all these things look like in a very secure way. Now that I'm 31, it's been quite a different tale. <laughs> I recently got passed up for a job I thought would be life-changing after four months of interviewing. I lost my fourth person who I've been friends with to taking their own life this year, which went from, this is depressing, to what the fuck is going on very quickly lost my childhood dog recently, and for May, June, and part of July was couch surfing and house sitting because I broke up with my recently also out of the closet bisexual Midwestern ex-evangelical Christian musician, sweet but aloof ex-boyfriend <laughs> who I was living with and thought it'd be a good idea to live with. And uh, the reality hit me very hard after that. Um, it was a square one I didn't know I could be in, in a world I didn't know I could live in. And um, the hard lines that I had drawn as a young person uh, were very different. I set up this life that would be grueling. It would be mostly, in my mind, practical with a little bit of pleasure and it would be a lot of hard work to rise in the career which I was in my entire adult life, which was Republican politics. And, um, which is very calming. Uh, and has gone on a very linear path in the last 10 years. So I told myself I would do this, this 
line I'd made for myself. I would leave little room for diverting and little room for burnout and little room for you know, saying no to the grueling jobs and little room to explore anything sexual or different about myself that I thought I might have because I needed to get to be in the room where decisions were made. That's what my idea of success would be. And I'd meet that person, maybe she was a Democrat, on the other side, we'd have this Carville-Matlin relationship. But we'd both get there together and we'd both, you know, like step on the toxic bullshit that we have to deal with to rise the escalator to not only be in the room, but to be the names that everyone associated with making things happen. That was my idea of love uh, and hard work and a life that should be good. So I really based it off of the 1990s song by Reba McIntyre, Fancy. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard, have any of you heard Fancy? It's a really good song. It's a bit taboo. Fancy's mom doesn't have a lot of cashola, so she pimps Fancy out and tricks her out and makes her into a nice little hooker and makes sure she treats the rich and the powerful real well, so they treat her real well in return. And there's a line in Fancy that says, if you be nice to the gentleman Fancy, they'll be nice to you. And I really based my idea of getting ahead in my career on that line from Fancy. <laughs> I wasn't giving out hand jobs like Fancy was, at least yet, but I was giving off hot coffee and hot copies to any shitty boss that asked. I wasn't spending romantic nights with congressmen. I was working grueling nights, looking up opposition research for them and cutting negative TV ads in dingy parts of the Republican National Committee at all hours of the night for crappy wage. But for the dream that one day, I would be thanked and seen in jobs that were thankless and made you feel invisible. And so I worked and I worked and I worked. And I had a very different uh, outcome than that. Uh, I decided to move. I decided to go all over the world 10 years in Seattle and DC and LA and Providence, Rhode Island before I came back to Idaho where I was at 21 to have a relationship I never expected which was lovely to be able to experience this part of me with someone who was also experiencing it for the first time and to feel this openness and to feel this connection that I never really thought I could feel in also maintaining this career which didn't really allow a lot of room for that um, but figuring it all out and it took me traveling kind of all over the world to get back to Idaho to live this life I had not ever planned for the last time I was in this state. And it took my Midwestern boyfriend literally not being in Kansas anymore to be here and experience that. But we experienced it. And I felt like at 21 I was the terrible, awful witch putting myself on a very long, arduous conveyor belt to be able to be the good witch I hope I could be at one point in time. Um, by all means necessary. And I thought a lot at my 31st birthday about sort of the conversation I would have with myself um, at 21 now. And it didn't really look like a conversation that really looked like, 
younger me reading a list of judgments and the same emphaticism as someone from Law and Order reading to someone on a witness stand. So let me get this straight, younger me would say. So you're gay and you've been homeless for a while and you just got dumped by a dude and you live with your cat. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing, is that correct? Well, I'd say, I'm actually bisexual, which I know we both thought was the wimpy way of being gay without actually committing <laughs> to being gay, but it's real, it's a thing, I like women, sometimes they like me, not a whole lot, no more men like me, it's a long story. Particularly larger Hispanic dudes, that's a weird thing, but... <sighs> But I did live with this guy, and it was a lovely time. We broke up for very straight reasons that you still deal with. Uh, you know, we weren't hearing each other's needs. The needs we were hearing weren't being met, and we uh, were afraid to talk about needs, and so we broke up in the end the gayest way possible, hugging and crying, four sessions of therapy, and an exchange of Benet Brown books on the way out the door. <laughs> Betty Ford, the cat, is the best thing that's ever happened to you. She's traveled 20 states with you in the car. She loves you, and you need her. As far as the house goes, you bought one. You're an idiot. You rented all the rooms, moved into this guy. Uh, the rooms were not available, so you had a couch for a few months until you get back into your own house you bought. But I bought you a fucking house. You're welcome. I'm grateful. So you didn't make it in Republican politics. We worked so hard. We kissed a lot of ass. We worked a lot of grueling hours and shitty jobs to make it. What the fuck happened? Well, I didn't fuck that up. It fucked me up and I had to get out. We put in the hours. There was days that we'd be in the room together in the cubicle saying goodnight to everyone as the sun was going down, only to be in the same clothes hours later as the sun was coming up and everyone was coming back into work and you never left. You were making those ads, and you hid in bushes with cameras to chase congressmen to ask them about their alleged affairs down the street to make a negative TV ad. You put in the work. You had bosses that went to jail or you got so socially canceled, it almost would have been better if they went to jail. Seemed less harsh. Um, don't worry, you're not a Democrat, don't worry. But you're not what you used to be. After the guy from The Apprentice became president, you became the R word. And younger me would be like, oh my God, are we retarded? And I would say no. Honestly, in our circles, it's socially worse. You're a rhino now. Oh my God. Well, you didn't change. Things changed and shit happened, but you worked, you worked really hard. Okay. And now you're in Idaho, life's a little easier, you're trying to help good people, you're figuring out what that looks like, it's a little less exciting, sometimes you're bored, but you figure it out, it's okay. We figure it out. Okay, so what about that respect? The respect I needed to feel the respect I thought I deserved. And all the people, my friends, my family, all the people's ring I kissed, what do they think of me? Well, uh, You've been asking the wrong question, I realized it. It was never about what all these other people thought of you. You never asked, do I respect what I'm doing or myself or am I enjoying what I'm doing or the people around me, do I respect them? And 
once you asked that and I started asking that, it was a very different ball game. And you started realizing that the love of friends that just want you to be happy is really the best feeling and to be able to love them is very lucky and a very good feeling too. But there is only one thing that feels better and that is seeing your recently ex-boyfriend on a date with a guy who looks super bored and looks not only like you, but an uglier version of you. And pettier younger me would emphatically agree with that. Still a little pissed that I'm kinda gay, but agreeing. And I'd cut it off, 31 year old me would cut it off, it'd be done with the trial, uh, wondering where I need to be and where I need to go. And, all these different things um, that I couldn't answer. I've realized that really in the last few years, the only one whose judgment I've really needed was Betty Ford's, and honestly, she's the only pussy I've really tried to impress in the last two years. And I got there. So, to quote a good witch, Benet Brown, it can be very hard to own your story, but it can be far more exhausting to always be running from it. So I'm so honored that you all are here to hear a little bit about my story, where I've been. I have no idea where I'm going, but I can't wait to find out who he is. I'm excited to meet him. I hope he's doing well. And I hope you all are doing well in your future too. So thank you so much, Amos Rothstein. Thank you, Amos. We'll have to have you back in 10 years to see <laughs> what's going on with your 41-year-old self. I have to say also, like you sharing that information about the Reba song and how it impacted um, your career path has inspired me to share like the re real reason I went into journalism, because I was inspired by a film. Um, but not all the president's men. <laughs> it was a, a Nancy Myers rom-com called I Love Trouble. Does anyone remember this one? It's very, very bad. Julia Roberts is in it with Nick Nolte, and she's a journalist, and that was kind of the origin of my career path for a long time. Um, we are going to close out the night with a bunch of slammers, so I will draw our next name. Rob Whiting, Whiting. May I detach, no, or no, am no, I, no, I anchored? No. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'll start with a caveat to me speaking. Um, I am not a professional in any sense. Uh, it's been some time since I spoke publicly. That's why I like the anonymity of the shades. You're lucky I'm not still sporting the COVID screen too. We're gonna miss that. I think a lot of us know that. Um, but I did ex recently accept a job that uh, is going to involve some public speaking. So when I'm in situations like this and such an opportunity presents itself, I find it, it just helps you get in the swing of things, right? To help you think on your feet in situations like that. That's why the notes, um, when I realized the theme to put my hat, my hat in the ring, 
uh, I had to start thinking about times of you know, misplaced judgment. Um, and it, it really didn't come to me that easily. Y'all know, it's, it's not something that people often associate, misplaced judgment, with straight white males. It's very, very rare. Um, so it hasn't happened to me too often. But I did think of one circumstance. It was when I, it was, I was in college. You know, there's a time and a place for everything. And it was when I learned about passion. I was, I was in Europe, actually. I was doing the most upper middle class crap ever. I had studied abroad in North Africa, and decided to backpack, backpack around Europe from hostel to hostel. You know, I was thinking about how I was gonna save the world, and I was reading a lot of Brett Easton Ellis, and I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Slaughterhouse-Five was in there, for sure. Um, and I also didn't know how to balance a checkbook, but the world was what mattered. Um, anyway, uh, it was when I learned that love is more than passion, right? I will never forget it. I was in Greece. Uh, it was over the summer, and I remember it was 2004, um, because it was the year that Greece had won the European Cup in football, what you punters call soccer, apparently. Um, Anyway, uh, there had been a great party. I was on an island called Peros, um, staying at a hostel. And I had just come from Italy, and I had gotten really hooked on good cappuccinos, like very dry cappuccinos, which, again, pretentious as hell. I acknowledge that. Um, anyway, if you know a good place in Boise, let me know. Uh, so I had found this cafe. It was a good cafe bar right next to the sea on this island of Peros. I, was, I went there one day just to read. Um, I remember I was reading a New Yorker because they had good long form. I, I forget when I got into that, but I'm just, I'm really piling on here as far as ability to resent me. But I'm sitting at, I'm sitting at the bar, um, just with a, and I, I, I walk up to the bar with my New Yorker right at the same time as somebody else is walking up. And I sit down, settle myself up in the New Yorker, and I just put a two in the air, the cappuccino, right? Um, I see the person next to me moving, I look over, it is, it's a Greek girl. Great uh, olive skin, wonderful looking, um, beautiful girl, and she, she's sitting down right next to me at the coffee bar. So I just look ahead and start reading my New Yorker, and I'm reading through it, just trying to play it cool, which I thought was a thing at the time. Um, clearly not anymore, but uh, I, I waited a few minutes, and then, you know, I, I, I'm reading the New Yorker, getting really into it. Um, into it, I just said about a New Yorker, sorry. And uh, I hear the cups get broken, or get brought out, I, get, I hear my coffee get put down on, on the bar. And a few minutes later, I, I reach out, have a sip of coffee, and put it down. I had been looking over at her, just to see if she was acknowledging me in any sense. Not at all, of course. Um, finally, I see that she looked at me just kind of sideways, just a bit of a, an exploratory glance, you know what I mean? And she did her, um, we met eye, eyes for a second and her, she did that very curious and playful eyebrow arch, you know, you know what I mean, it just goes. <laughs> and uh, on this side. Um, sorry, I'm very forensic about these things. Anyway, uh, and then she reaches down and she takes my cappuccino and takes a sip. And 
I was, I was really drawn in by this. I didn't, I didn't know what this meant. I was, the, is this a Greek form of seduction, or is she, <laughs> is this a Greek form of, no, that's my coffee now. I, I had no idea, right? So I just kept reading my New Yorker. I, I didn't, I hadn't dealt with the circumstance of this nature before. So I waited a few minutes, and then I, I, I reached down again, and I, I trembling a little. I really didn't know where this was going, but I took another sip of my cappuccino. And I, I waited a moment, eyes met again, and I could, I could see just that, that mild curiosity on her face that's so attractive in somebody you don't know yet, you know what I mean? Um, and I, I noticed in pouty lips, and I, she reached down and she took another sip of the cappuccino with eyes on mine. And this time it, it was very much like I was discovering the passion that we would share later. I, it, was, it, it was pure passion, it was pure sensuality. The, I mean, she even had sucked in a little bit of extra foam as she was going, you know. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it, that, that it had begun, truly. I mean, it had begun what would become of us. And, so I, I continued just reading my New Yorker and enjoying this feeling that I knew would only build. And I took another sip of the cappuccino. And the passion was so ripe. It was, I mean, I could feel the heat of her finger on the cup. It, I could, it was her heat. It was not the cappuccinos. And my hand trembled, and, and she took another sip. And, and this time, there was even a little bit of foam on her lips as she, she brought the cup away. It, it, was, it was a comfort with the passion that we would find. A familiarity almost at this stage. We had, we had really started to explore our passion together at this point. You know, our, our relationship, I could feel it was, it was, it was progressing, it was aging. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so this happened to you too, nice. Um, and, I didn't know what else to make of it. I, I let this continue. I, I sipped again, and I, I, you know, cappuccinos are not the biggest drinks in the world, and it, <laughs> I was worried that it, I, at this point, I was worried, right, that, that um, it wouldn't last forever. Uh, what, had, what had built between the two of us, and then she, she took another sip, too, and I, I realized that the cappuccino was dementia. I'm sorry. It was diminishing. That was actually just a catch in my throat. I had to try to play it off. Anyway, uh, it was diminishing, and I could feel ultimately what would be left after, after this passion had run its course, right? I, you need more than passion to find that bond with somebody, to find that love, because I thought we had found that love. By that third sip, I mean, I was relishing the smudge of lipstick she was leaving on the cappuccino. And, and, I could feel the heat of her fingers, like I say. It was like we had built so much, and I could feel what would be left after we had explored the passion. I, a difference in cultures, right? A difference in families, a difference in backgrounds, a difference in language. And we, we wouldn't have a common ground on which to build that, that deeper life that I think all of us really aspire to, right? 
And, and I, I knew that when the passion had run its course, we would start to resent each other. We would resent those differences that we had with each other. We'd come home from work, and we wouldn't be able to vent about our day to our partner. We wouldn't be able to share perspectives on how to discipline our children or our dog. We would not be, there wouldn't be anything besides the passion on which to build, right? And she took that final sip and I knew that ultimately uh, one of us would, would make poor decisions <laughs> out of that resentment. Very natural to make such decisions, especially in a place as passionate, as, as romped with discovery as Europe is. I was learning so much in college. And so I, I knew what I had to do. So I, um, I took a, a gulp. I finished by gulp the rest of the cappuccino. <laughs> and at this point, she just looked straight at me. right in the eyes and I, I said I, I'm sorry but we both know this couldn't have gone any other way <laughs> and then I stood up from the bar I started getting my stuff ready to go and there behind the New Yorker was my cappuccino <laughs> So I went back to the hostel and I rubbed one out. Uh, make sure to sign our release form. <laughs> I, I have to say, I also had a, in a, you know, a romantic experience in Greece once. I was walking along the beach and this guy named Spiros um, offered to close his shop to go out with me right at that moment, um, but I was traveling with my dad, so I had to say no. Um, uh, as much as I enjoyed the active mic work that was involved in that story, um, I will say for future slammers, we are recording, so it's easier if you can just uh, leave the mic. We can adjust it here. Um, it's just better for the sound. Um, and I think we will draw our next slammer, if I can get the, the names up here. Sky. That's good. All right. It's 2012, and I'm standing on stage with my Idaho hometown friend. And next to him is his father. And next to his father is the mayor of Stockton, California. His father leans over and pins a brand new, freshly minted police badge on his son. And his son also had the accolade of winning or earning top of his class. Now, after Joe graduated, he went through the field training officer protocol, and he had field training officers that, <laughs> uh, that he admired. 
Now, once he completed that section of his you know, career, he was eligible to have a ride-along. Now, a ride-along is where a civilian can sign some papers and hop in with the police officer and go along with his shift. So I signed those papers, and Joe lines up a Saturday evening, the late shift, in the most dangerous part of Stockton. And it happened to be a full moon. <laughs> now, I hop into that SUV, and we're 20 minutes into Joe's shift, and the radio goes off. Joe becomes silent. And then he says, I'm glad we're next to the freeway. The lights go on, the siren goes on, we hit the freeway and we are flying down that freeway. Cars are melting away and we dip down into this very rough looking apartment building. And we're the second officer on scene. The first officer is pulled up, door open, he's standing there with his gun drawn at his hip, talking to the Hispanic gal who's 15 feet in front of him telling her, you're doing a great job right now, keeping the pressure on this shirtless man's neck who's been stabbed multiple times across him. Now, Joe in his SUV lines up with the other officer. And right before he gets out of the car, he turns and looks at me and says, don't get out of the fucking car. <laughs> Closes the door and both officers go out of my view. So now I'm looking at this woman who's trying to maintain pressure on this young man who's just jacked up on adrenaline. And he'd stand up abruptly from time to time and just drop and then come back to life. And the whole time, this woman is holding this blood-drenched t-shirt against his neck. It was about seven minutes until the rest of the cavalry showed up the fire, the ambulance, and so forth. And I'm staying there looking at this guy bleeding to the brink of death until all of a sudden everyone comes in, he's on a stretcher in the ambulance and on his way out. <clears throat> and eventually, Joe hops in to the SUV and explains to me, well, so that guy is a part of the Norteño gang, which is Mexican-American gangsters, and he's in a Sureño neighborhood, which is Mexican-born gangsters. Naturally, the next step is to go up to the Norteño neighborhood to see if they're going to mount up a retaliation for one of their members being stabbed in the neck. And we head up into that Norteño neighborhood, and it's just as rough looking as that Sordeño neighborhood. And as we get in there, there is this very big statured gangster looking guy who's wearing shorts and is all tatted up. And Joe says, oh, hey, that's Martinez. I know Martinez. And he pulls over. And right before he gets out of the car, he goes, don't get out of the fucking car. I'm like, oh my god. And I sit there and watch Joe walk up to Martinez, and it appears as a very serious conversation. And then it turns to these guys, kind of shooting the shit. They're laughing, they're cracking jokes like they're old friends. 
And sure enough, Joe comes and walks back up, and he says, hey, you want to meet a gangster? I was like, I thought I wasn't allowed out of the car. He was like, no, you're not, but let's go. And I walk up to Martinez and shake his hand, and Joe said, so you got any questions for Martinez? Put on the spot, and I said, well, you know, Martinez, do you, you have any you know, memorable tattoos? And he said, absolutely. So he showed his right hand, and between his finger and his pointer, right on this piece were four dots. And he earned those when he was jumped in to the Norteño gang. Now, as that conversation was winding down, Joe said, hey, Martinez, you still got that scar? And Martinez laughed a little bit and pulled up his knee. And sure enough, there's this big scar on the left side of his knee. I said, oh, OK. And we're walking away. And Joe said, well, I'm happy that you're sticking with your rehabilitation program and so forth. And you don't have a good night. And we hop back into that SUV. Now, how did Joe know about Martinez's scar? And I learned that while Joe was going through that field training scenario, and he was being led by these new officers, or he was a new officer learning. Martinez was definitely not sober. And Joe's field training officer was trying to restrain him. And Martinez got loose and nailed Joe. They connected, and they both hit the ground hard. It split Joe's elbow and put a huge gash in Martinez's knee. Now, Martinez was arrested. And he went to the hospital, chained to the bed. And Joe was also treated in that same hospital. And later in the evening, Joe said, well, you know, I'm going to go talk to him. I feel like this is a better opportunity. Cooler heads, and I'm going to have a conversation. And he went over and sat next to Martinez, and they talked. And at one point, Martinez looked at Joe and said, hey, man, I, I apologize. I, I got out of pocket. And Joe's like, that's all right, man, you know? And in a very formal way, Joe explained to him the actions of the police and that the outcome was something that they both didn't want. Now, prior to me meeting Martinez, I was sitting there watching a cop and a crook who had bonded and both had this shared empathy on trying to maintain peace in the city that they love. Now, Joe wanted to find a way to have the biggest impact that he can have in his community. And years later, and what he's doing now, is he is that field training officer. And what he does is reinforces those new officers in Stockton to tell them that who they serve, that the officers live amongst who they serve. And those they serve are the humanity that unites them. And with that, I have a new perspective and a new judgment as to what it takes to be a police officer. And Still to this day, Joe gets a kick out of it because he'll tell me, don't get out of the fucking car. <laughs>
Thank you. Um, I don't have a police ride-along anecdote to follow that up with, um, but I can draw our last slammer of the evening. Okay, not looking. Fran. I've been up here a few times, but today I'm going to start my story with Christmas Eve 1994. The lights were twinkling on the Christmas tree, the two kids were in bed, and I was trying to judge just how nice I had been that year. Or perhaps I should have been judging just how naughty I had been that year, because about nine and a half months later, my third child was born. <laughs> and I think really what I misjudged was that window of fertility, right? <laughs> so I think a lot about misjudgments. You know, how do we get to these misjudgments? And I think in that particular case, it wasn't really a lack of information or too much information, but it was really my selfishness and my desire of the moment. I wanted that moment under the Christmas tree <laughs> more than I wanted the responsibility of making sure that getting pregnant didn't happen. My youngest is now 26, and she is a mother of a three-year-old. So I hope she has learned those lessons better than I have. <laughs> but I think, I think about the times when we misjudge because we don't have the right information at the right time. So twice I've fallen, I've misjudged my next step, and I've broken my nose, and I broke my leg. Both times it was because I didn't judge the slipperiness of the rocks that I was going to step on, or that there was a big log in front of me. And so I suffered those consequences. The other instance that happened was on a day that I played hooky from grad school, I decided I was going to go to my favorite hot springs. I typically don't tell people what those are anymore because I don't want you guys all necessarily to know where it's at. <laughs> I will only say that this was a hot spring that I normally hiked into, but this particular year, on my birthday, playing hooky from grad school, I drove to this hot spring, and it was great. I had the entire hot spring to myself. I packed a picnic lunch, I packed wine, I packed my journal. It was a fantastic day. My family, my husband and my three children were going to have a birthday party for me at six o'clock that night. No problem, right? Well, as I'm driving back to the official road, <laughs> my car gets stuck in the mud. On the way there to the hot spring, I didn't notice just a different color of the sand. You know, I didn't notice that on the way there, but when I am driving back to head home, 
that different color sand now has a stream of water running through it. And so I say, hmm, well, I might as well try, right? <laughs> so I try, and I bury my car almost to the top of my wheels. So there's a lot more to that story, which I won't go into, but the gist of that misjudgment of that part of the road led me to spending a night in the middle of nowhere, led me to the process of getting a divorce through many years, and was pretty, I suffered a lot of consequences for that one misjudgment. But then there's a, a different set of circumstances of misjudgment. Those are the misjudgments where we have the information, but maybe we aren't processing it in the right way, or it's someone else's information and it's not our own. And I think about that because I think of all of the people I've misjudged, all of the circumstances I've misjudged, all of the books by their cover I've misjudged, but I think the person that I've misjudged the most is myself. And I have done that based on information that I've received all of the decades of my life from my mother who told me, why are you going to go to college? You're just going to get married and have babies. And a husband who told me, yeah, you're not going to make it on your own as I was leaving, as I was divorced. And I listened to those judgments, which were really other people's judgments, right? But I heaped that onto myself, and I made myself really small for a lot of years of my life. And it took a divorce. It took me living on my own for the first time ever. It took me saying, I can do this. You know, I believe, so I can, to prove not at first probably to other people, but then to myself that I do not need to judge myself so harshly, that I am capable, and that I am strong, and that I am going to live a glorious, beautiful, wonderful life. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. And make sure to sign our release form also. <laughs> Uh, maybe one final round of applause for all of our storytellers of the evening. And as we close out the night, I just have a few final acknowledgments. Um, stories come from the land as well as its people, and I want to acknowledge that in addition to being in a place used for incarceration, we are also on the traditional land of the Shoshone Bannock people. Story Story Late Night is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, remember, you can listen to podcasts from all our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or go to storystorynight.org and click on podcasts. We also have a radio show. It's Story Story Night on Stray Theater, which you can hear on the Sunday before our live show from 5.30 to 6 p.m. 
And if you want to see our last season, the reboot, it's all up on our Story Story Night YouTube channel. Thank you to our crew, technical director, podcast engineer, Stephen Baldessari. Thank you to our musical guest, Che. Thank you to our photographer, Christina Birkenbein, wherever she is. There she is. <laughs> you will find the photos from tonight's show by following Story Story Night on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you to our volunteers and our volunteer coordinator, Natalia DeJosia. Thank you to our board of directors. Thank you to our story subscribers. You can become a story subscriber with a monthly support at storystorynight.org slash supporters or text story sub to 44321 on your phone. Thank you to our late night director, Beth Norton. Thank you. Thank you to our producing artistic director, Jody Eichelberger. Thank you to the old Idaho Penitentiary for hosting us. Join us next month as we continue down our yellow brick road with Ruby Slippers, stories of being in someone else's shoes. Tickets are available now at storystorynight.org. You can help us spread the word by grabbing some postcards from this uh, Slammer booth on your way out and, and sharing those. Thank you all so much again for being out here and we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find it too. Thanks to guest host Allison Meyer and musical guest Che. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.